So let me just give you a quick example. We're on the third floor of the building where we work. So today, when just now, I, I went up the stairs, which is obviously good for me at a cardiovascular level anyway. But I went up the stairs because I thought, well, it's probably better to be on the stairs, right? The elevator is a confined space. If we're worried about social distancing, about keeping six feet away from one another, well, I mean, if anybody's on the elevator, it's going to be fairly hard to keep six feet away from them. God knows what it would be like to step onto a really crowded elevator car at this point. That doesn't seem like a good idea. I don't know what people do whose offices or apartments are on the 25th floor. Um, taking the stairs doesn't seem like an option. But I think one of the problems we're having right now, one of the things we're going to try to address today, as much as we can anyway, is that... You know, even if you fancy yourself a fairly rational actor and the kind of person who collects a lot of information, as much information as possible, in order to make good decisions about a serious situation, which I would say is what we're in right now with COVID-19, you know, if N is the amount of information that you could easily handle, digest, and then implement to manage the course of your life— you know, you probably have N to the fourth power information right now. And I mean, if you've been ingesting it the way I have anyway, and that gets complicated. If you know too much, you start losing the power to choose behaviors because you know a little bit too much and some of the information you're getting may not be perfect or maybe completely imperfect, maybe something you saw on the internet that's untrue, uh, something the president of the United States said that's untrue. Uh, so it's it's a very, very complicated information environment right now. We're going to see what we can do to help you. Um, joining us right now, I should say a little bit later, we are going to address specifically the question of the government, the federal government, and the head of the federal government giving us or not giving us reliable information and, uh, ha and handling that either well or not well. But right now, we'd like to sort of stay with the public health aspect of all this. Carolyn Canusio is joining us, an associate professor of family medicine and community health section on public health, Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I'm so glad to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. So it would be great. I mean, I think people do want information and they want to be smart uh, about this, but it doesn't seem like there's a single source that they could go to, like one place where they would go and they, they would, for example, know whether it makes sense to take the stairs instead of the elevator or, you know, a, a hundred other personal choices that they're making every day. Sure. I think it is complicated to try to filter through the noise and listen for the signal. And I would suggest that people limit their intake of the news and maybe schedule it for a certain time of day. Uh, perhaps at the end of the day, check in with some of the major news outlets and with the CDC website. And then there are a few places I go for information that has been synthesized. And that includes the University of Minnesota hmm. has a Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, uh, Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Lipsitch, and John Ho Johns Hopkins, their infectious disease folks. I tend to go to those three universities that are doing a good job putting out information for the public. So uh, so that's, that all by itself is very helpful to know. So um, one of the things that we saw this weekend is a, a much more massive quarantine uh, in northern Italy than had previously existed. 
this was accompanied, at least for me, on social media by videos of people running to catch trains out of northern Italy to catch the last train so they wouldn't be quarantined, which seems a little bit counterproductive. Um, this is going to be probably, well, let's back up and say, is this going to be a week where because of the increased levels of testing, the, the United States is going to get more of the kinds of information it needs to make decisions about what the proper response is? This feels like a week where we might wind up at the end of the week knowing a lot more than we know now? That's a great question. I've been saying to my epidemiology students and my students in an epidemic seminar this semester, as well as to my family, that we should be prepared for the case counts to rise rapidly here in the United States. And that reflects a backlog in testing. We've been slow to get our tests going for a number of logistical reasons, for reasons having to do with complicated and changing protocols about who should get tested and when. So we can really expect that we are going to hear about a lot of newly diagnosed individuals. And I think that that will activate the public. I want people to know that that's coming so that they're not suddenly alarmed. Right. So, yeah, the, the, the numbers, the very small numbers that we hear in the United States relative to some of the larger numbers in other places, uh, they are, I, I think, what you're saying is kind of a product of our inability to test at the level and volume that you would typically want to test with a, a significant disease outbreak like this one. That's exactly right. And for two months, I guess, since the beginning of January or the middle of January, I've been looking at the maps provided by Johns Hopkins, and I've been looking at the United States and seeing these isolated dots on the map. Mm -hmm. And I always say to my epidemiology students, is it real? Right. Do you believe the data? So don't just look at the data and say, oh, look, we're in good shape here in the United States. We have to be skeptical about the data, not because somebody is deliberately trying to pull the wool over our eyes, but because we have not been doing this widespread testing. And for example, in places like South Korea, now they are running about 15,000 tests a day, and we are running uh, far fewer, I believe. I don't know what the count is today, but we've been very slow in getting the testing going. And that's absolutely essential for understanding the scope of community transmission mm -hmm. and for trying to identify people who are ill so that we can isolate people who are ill and trace their contacts. Right. I, I've, I've seen epidemiologists say now that it's a, I hope I'm paraphrasing correctly, it would be safer to assume that wherever you live, it's present. It, it may not, you, there may not be anybody who's symptomatic, there may not be tests coming back, but the idea that you live in one of the, you know, 21 states where there hasn't been a reported case might be, as you're suggesting you say to your students, that might be kind of an illusion uh, as opposed to something that you could say with some confidence. I agree. And I think it's the time now for us to practice new behaviors with the assumption that people in our community are infected and that there is the potential to be exposed. And I say that for two reasons. One is because it's likely true that the virus is present in many communities across the United States. And I say it also because it takes time for people to change their behaviors. So we've been trying for weeks 
to get people to think more about washing their hands and about limiting unnecessary travel, for example, and for limiting large gatherings. But my impression is that those messages, while they're resonant in the public health community, the public isn't clear yet on what we all should be doing to reduce risk. So let's uh, hear uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and uh, Infectious Diseases, uh, talking to Chuck Todd on Meet the Press um, about at least one aspect of, of these, this kind of change in, in, in attitude. You know, I think right now something that's important that I, I, I hope the American people appreciate is that the risk of getting into trouble with this infection, namely if you are infected, is overwhelmingly weighted towards people with underlying conditions and the elderly. And that's the reason why if you are an elderly person with an underlying condition, if you get infected, the risk of getting into trouble is considerable. So it's our responsibility to protect the vulnerable. When I say protect, I mean right now, not wait until things get worse. Say no large crowds, no long trips, and above all, don't get on a cruise ship. All right. So that feels like good advice anyway. But um, so, uh, yeah, I think we're all trying to understand this and and an awful lot of the like the the specific to COVID-19 information seems to be coming out of China. Right. That's where they've had a chance to look at comorbidity and the role that it would play in the expression of acute respiratory disease, uh, age factors, all those kinds of things. It it seems as though uh, what we know that can we we can specifically apply to this thing is the testing and the the observation of people in China? So we're definitely looking at China. And and I I first want to talk about what Dr. Fauci said, Mm -hmm. because I think his advice, he's the expert and we should be listening. And he said, no large crowds, no long trips, and certainly don't get on a cruise. And what he's, and and he talked about people with underlying conditions and the elderly. So here in the U.S., we have about 133 million people who suffer from chronic illnesses, and we have an aging population. I firmly believe that it is imperative for older adults and people with chronic illness themselves to take precautions, but I also want us all to be thinking, no matter how well we are or how strong we feel or how invulnerable we perceive ourselves to be, We are all on defense together now, and we absolutely have to be thinking about every single action we ourselves can take to protect people who are very vulnerable. And if they were to get COVID-19, the risk of fatality is markedly higher. And I know I spoke with a group of undergraduates last week, and they said, I don't get it you know, what's the big deal? People like us seem to do well. And I said, okay, I am thankful every single day right now that young people seem to do very well with this disease. It's a mantra I return to. Young people do well. They will fare well. They will be healthy. They will recover. Thank goodness. However, it's a time for every young person to think I can be a lifesaver for every person in the population to think I can be a lifesaver. And that caring for the community is going to look counterintuitive to us because what we're going to have to do 
in order to help people is we're going to have to do less in the public sphere. We're going to have to spend more time at home. We're going to have to avoid parties, crowds, gatherings, hockey games, and we are going to have to limit our movement. And we love our freedom in this country, but for the time being, we have to do everything in our power to make sure that this epidemic doesn't increase furiously. We have to try to flatten the curve. We keep saying flatten the curve. So if you picture rapidly escalating case counts and all the pressure that we'll put on our healthcare system and the deaths that will ensue, we have to pull back from public life and slow down and stay put in order to limit the spread of these initial cases so that we take some of the fuel out of this fire. Right. I mean, I think one of the things that I've been trying to, the ways that I've been trying to think about it, and I'm happy to say it on the radio, think of the person that you love and care about the most who's 80 years or older, or the person you love and care about the most who has a compromised uh, immune system, or who has chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or, or think about that person. That's who you're keeping yourself healthy for. You're doing it for that person. You're not. I think we tend to sort of think, well, as long as I take care of myself, that's my primary responsibility. It seems to me what you're saying is, well, no, taking care of yourself is something you're going to do for other people, too. Exactly. And we're not going to get thank you notes for this work we're doing, right? We will not ever know exactly whose life was saved because we were very careful about washing our hands and because we said, you know what? I don't have to go to that basketball game. I don't have to go to that hockey game. Uh, we're not going to know, and that's the difficult thing about prevention because it's hard to change these behaviors, and it's especially hard if we're not rewarded for that change. It feels cruddy to say I can't go to a social event. It feels cruddy to be stuck in your house day after day with all your kids, but we can save lives, and this is a highly unusual situation. It is not going to last forever but we need to start acting now in order to take some of these social distancing precautions. You know, um, if we could just talk, first of all, I, I'm so glad that you're saying all of that. And I do think that there is a kind of almost personal inertia that we have. If you, we think about inertia in physics, it's the tendency of an object to keep doing whatever it is that it's doing. We were kind of like that, too. If you take the elevator every day and you step on with 12 other people and you don't think too much of it, I mean, you're just going to keep doing that. I, I, I'm sitting here, but every day I come in and I put on a set of headphones that three or four other people use, you know, and they're touching my face right now. So, but it's the kind of thing you don't think of because you, we become unconscious about what our routines are. And even when we're told to change them, we don't even think about the, the routines that we're in. So it's a great message. I want to just quickly ask you, uh, you know, what we've seen in China where it does look like maybe they're starting to flatten that curve. You know, they have the ability, they have the advantage maybe of being a somewhat more autocratic country where you can give people orders. Americans don't take orders very well. Uh, if we get to the point where people start talking about quarantines like what we've seen in Italy, it also seems like kind of a patchwork system that's in the control of the states quite a bit. And the states have these not updated laws that have been sitting on the books for decades and decades and, and have never been invoked. I mean, we really haven't done much of the kind of thing that we would be talking about. Uh, how, I don't know, what's your perspective on that? Sure. So looking at the data from China, it's very impressive to see how China managed to enforce 
these measures that drove down the incidence of the disease of COVID-19. So they have been highly effective and the measures have been draconian. So both things are true. Mm -hmm. It's been very hard on communities. It's been very hard on families. And they've cut the incidence and therefore also the mortality by a dramatic amount. So what can we do within the American context to try to initiate some of those measures? I would say that we have to think about how life is going to change radically. The intermediate example is Italy because they're just a few steps and several days ahead of us in their experience and their and their social context is more similar to ours. And still they're locking down communities and quarantining an entire region. And you heard uh, our federal government say that those, I think Dr. Fauci said that some regional quarantines could be enacted here in the United States. And I would not be surprised if that were to happen, if travel were to be limited. I, I do see a lot of independent decision-making, which is vulnerable to self-centeredness, i.e., I want to go on spring break with my family. If I just take these precautions, can I do it? And will we be safe? Well, your family might be, but if we all do that en masse, viruses thrive with groups of people and viruses thrive with the movement of populations. So we are just throwing more fuel on the fire. So I think we're going to see school closures. I think we're going to see more and more people quarantined. We have to figure out how to safely isolate patients who are sick because some of the Chinese data show that transmission within households or within families made it very difficult to get the reproductive number or the number of people infected by each infected person to get that number down low enough to control the epidemic. So they they isolated people who were sick outside the home. Uh, so some of these are real issues that we have to figure out very quickly. In 2009, I had the experience, I was actually going to Japan to give a series of lectures at a school. It was it happened to go inside with the 2009 swine flu outbreak, which the Japanese took very seriously, um, I think more seriously than the U.S. did. Uh, when we landed on the tarmac in, in Osaka, uh, before we even got to a gate, I think, we were boarded by people in hazmat suits, which who took our temperatures with those kind of external temperature guns. And we had to fill out all kinds of forms in which I'm sure everybody lied and said they never had a cold in their life right. or whatever. Right. Um, but it, it is, it, uh, this is a very unruly society. It, it's a society that's very much based on individualism. Um, right. and, and what you're describing is uh, a system where people cooperate for the common good, who, where people are also honest and forthcoming about their symptoms. Um, right. and, and I'm just wondering culturally, you know, whether we're going to be able to do this stuff. I, I don't know that that that's a question that's fair to ask you, but it must be something right. that you wonder about, too. I do wonder about it. And I think that as people start to see others get sick, they are going to understand the severity of the crisis we're facing. I think that it's difficult for people now to understand that their actions today, when they're unaware of people who are ill in their communities, 
it's hard for people to see how it's necessary to take a giant step back from their social lives. Um, so it, I think that that abstract nature of imagining an epidemic curve, it's emblazoned on my mind, but I'm an epidemiologist mm -hmm. um, and it's new to people. Um, I think, though, that there are examples from our history in the United States, including um, here in Philadelphia. In uh, I'll give you two contrasting examples. One is 1793, the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, and one is the 1918 flu. So in 1793, there was a, a heroic effort on the part of local citizens who, when the government fled in fear because of the outbreak of yellow fever, citizens organized these committees to take care of the sick in the hospital, to figure out the city's finances, to help with the children who were orphaned, um, they and to help with burials. So we have the records from those committees. We know that the Free African Society um, led by Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, organized uh, free black Americans to care for their neighbors. Um, we know that ordinary citizens took action to really advance the well-being of the entire community. So I think that in times of emergency, there is the possibility for bringing out sort of the better angels of our nature um, and I liken it to growing up on the east end of Long Island when we prepared for a hurricane. It was an incredible collective effort. And, you know, I was a child, so I was spared thinking about the seriousness of the event. What I remember is everyone coming out of their homes when we heard the warnings and we would all go down to the docks to tie everybody's boats across the canal and to batten down the hatches, basically. And there was this real collective spirit. Um, and I'm hoping that people recognize that desire to help themselves and simultaneously help our families and our neighbors. Um, the, the contrasting example from Philadelphia as well is the 1918 flu. And many people have shared this on social media, so your listeners may be familiar with it, but in 1918, there was the question during this deadly flu pandemic of whether or not Philadelphia should hold its Liberty Bond rally to raise money to support the war effort. And the city of Philadelphia decided to host the rally. And about 200,000 people showed up for the rally. And in the days immediately following that gathering, Rates of flu skyrocketed and skyrocketed in Philadelphia. Well, wow, okay, that, that, Philadelphia. That's a, mm -hmm. that's the lesson. Yeah, um, we're, we're going to wrap it up here, Carolyn Canusio. You have been fabulous. Thank you so much for the kind of clarity you just brought to this subject. You're uh, terrific at uh, doing this. Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Community Health Section on Public Health, Perelman School of Medicine, University <laughs> of Pennsylvania. Uh, thank you so much for taking your time today. I know it's a busy You're time so for welcome. you. Welcome. Be right. well, wash your hands, yes, and stay home as much as you can. All right. Thank you. You too. Uh, all right. So who else gives rallies? Who has rallies? She was mentioning rallies. Like, who would be so irresponsible as to insist that people come to a rally at a time when that's not a good idea? 
And I'm racking my brain here. I can't. Oh, I can think of somebody. We might be talking about that person in the next segment. Playing All right, we're back. Uh, thanks to uh, Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, who's also a nurse. I have a producer who's a nurse. You don't. No, but it is very, uh, it's great to have Betsy Kaplan on any day, but to have uh, her expertise for a show like this is really great. Cat Pastor's on the board. Our intern, Khalil Rahman, is on the phones. And uh, ideally, Dan Diamond is on Skype right now. He reports on healthcare politics and policy for Politico uh, and is the author of Politico Pulse. Uh, and he wrote this weekend about, uh, in fact, the management of this health crisis and the way in which it ladders up to the very top to President Trump. Uh, so first of all, Dan Diamond, thanks for joining our show today. Thank you for having me, Colin. So um, I, it's difficult to know where to begin. Maybe um, we'll begin, we'll play a little clip to you of Ben Carson talking to Jen, J- George Stephanopoulos on ABC this week uh, about the, the plan to deal with the passengers aboard the Grand Princess. Uh, the vice president met with the CEOs of the major cruise ship companies yesterday. And uh, they are coming up with a plan within 72 hours of that meeting. Uh, The ship's docking tomorrow. The plan will be in place by that time. But I I don't want to preview the plan right now. Shouldn't you be able to do that? I think I think it needs to all come from uh, a solitary source. We shouldn't have 16 people uh, saying what the plan is. Okay, particularly well, when it hasn't been particularly when it hasn't been fully formulated. All right, so Dan Diamond, um, just react to that for a second. This is part of the story that you've been reporting on. Well, Ben Carson is the HUD secretary over housing and urban development. He is not the health secretary, but he has been brought in as part of this political task force that the president has assembled to fight coronavirus. And that interview that he did with George Stephanopoulos, I think is indicative, Colin, of the both lack of information and and at times misinformation that the president and his team have put out. They're not all on the same page as to what should be done when there are direct questions, like the questions that Stephanopoulos asked. The president and his team haven't always been able to provide the answers. And at this point, with the coronavirus outbreak spreading in most of the states of the United States, there There is a sense among officials in the administration, as well as former officials, that the moment to potentially prevent this has passed, and we are now at at a moment of mitigation, trying to stop what is, or, or at least hinder, what could end up affecting many millions of Americans, if not contained. Right. It, it does seem as though, you know, there, it, it wouldn't entirely surprise me to learn that there's, you know, what President Trump often refers to as a deep state of people who've been working on this, working in the CDC or HHS or elsewhere in government, DHS, Homeland Security, too, on these kinds of questions for years and years and years and multiple president, presidential administrations and bring a lot of science and expertise to this and that they might clash with the so-called political structure at the top. But what emerges in your article and other the reporting is, it's not even as simple as that. It's not clear that President Trump and his own vice president, his designated point man uh, on this, are telling the same story at the same time. Well, I think you're right that there are career professionals, Tony Fauci being foremost among them, who's been leading infectious disease efforts for basically my entire lifetime, career professionals who 
know how to fight pandemics, who have worked to stop this kind of problem before. The the challenge, I think, is that the Trump administration and specifically President Trump have have warped the federal government response in ways that are both obvious and subtle. The obvious ways are that the president has been resistant to measures that might make the number of cases in the United States go up. And whether that's quickly offloading some of the passengers aboard a cruise ship where coronavirus has been raging, or perhaps being more aggressive at getting testing out into the marketplace uh, of, um, or, or out into to various states and allowing the marketplace like hospitals, like labs, not, not just government responders, but folks in the private sector to be able to move faster on lab testing. That's something that a different president would likely have been more aggressive on. I think the the subtle influence in which I really tried to capture in my article, I have covered the health department for four years now. Uh, mostly that's been the Trump administration, but I saw the Obama administration for its last year. And the way that health officials have either warped what they're willing to say because they're afraid of alarming President Trump or alternately choose not to say things. I think that's part of the story, too, and and how they worry for their jobs and a president who's famously mercurial and and doesn't like getting bad news. Um, we saw kind of a little microcosm of this uh, last year uh, when President Trump insisted that a hurricane was coming towards Alabama, when NOAA officials knew that it wasn't, National Weather Service officials knew that it wasn't. And it seemed as though the people who told the truth, as you're suggesting now, the people who spoke the truth were kind of disciplined or punished. There was ultimately kind of a sense that there was a sanction directed at people who insisted on on telling the meteorological truth. So you're, as I sense, you're, you're saying some of the people who might ordinarily be providing us good information are almost afraid to do that. I don't want to apply a blanket statement here because there are health officials, whether Nancy Massagne of the CDC, who spoke out about the likely risk to Americans a few weeks ago and incurred President Trump's anger, or, or even Health Secretary Alex Azar, who I've, I've written some articles that were pretty critical of his decisions, but at the same time, the secretary did push back in January to at least make this a presidential priority when some of Trump's political aides, like Kellyanne Conway, were perhaps more hesitant at even bringing this up. I I just think, Colin, that the way that the administration currently operates, it's so much further removed from not just Obama or or George W. Bush, but it, it is truly an administration where the policy process has been winnowed down so often to what President Trump decides what to do. And and that can be both powerful because you don't have to go through rounds and rounds of, of normal policy creation, but it also can be very intimidating for people who might have a negative message. And the president will famously attach in meetings to the most optimistic outcome that people give him, even if that is an unlikely outcome. Uh, we can hear a little bit of how that plays out in a public context. You're going to hear President Trump uh, at the CDC on Friday interrupting uh, a person that Dan just mentioned, HHS Secretary Alex Azar, uh, to give his version of things. The remaining lots are actually being tested here. Dr. Monroe's got them as of, I think, 1030 this morning, and they have to do the quality control. And then uh, if they pass, but, they but I think I think importantly, anybody right now, and yesterday, anybody that needs a test gets a test. We, they're there. They have the tests. And the tests are beautiful. Anybody that needs a test gets a test. If there's a doctor that wants to test, if there's somebody coming off a ship, like the big monster ship that's out there right now, which, you know, again, that's a big decision. Do I want to bring all those people on? People would like me to do that. 
I don't like the idea of doing it. But anybody that needs a test can have a test. They're all set. They have them out there. In addition to that, they're making millions of more as we speak. But as of right now and yesterday, anybody that needs a test, that's the important thing. And the tests are all perfect. Like the letter was perfect. The, the, we could be all here all day trying to parse all of that and uh, and pull all the little loose threads, including at the end where he says the letter. I think he's actually talking about the Ukraine situation, but I, I'm not 100 percent sure what he means all the way through. But what we have here is a situation where the person to whom a lot of Americans would turn to for leadership and clarity and credibility, presumably if the president says to something to us about a public health crisis, we can look upon that with confidence under ordinary circumstances. But it's a, not even clear what he's saying, but B, pretty clear that he is going with a blue skies scenario with these tests being perfect, these tests being beautiful, and these tests being available to anybody who wants them right now. That's right. The the statement that the tests were available to anybody on Friday is just patently false. There were many doctors, uh, hospitals, even patients who messaged me via Twitter or sent me emails saying, look, we, we are waiting for clarity on whether these patients have coronavirus or not. The testing failures have been, in my estimation, the biggest problem in the fight so far to try and contain coronavirus, uh, the, the novel coronavirus spread in the United States, or at least mitigate it because officials don't know who has it, don't know where the biggest clusters are. That will change this week as more testing comes online. Numbers will almost certainly go up. But that was not the case on Friday when President Trump claimed that anyone who wanted a test could get one. Right. And I think this is this came up in the first segment of the show today, but it's it's worth mentioning again this week because tests are going to be more readily available than they have. We're going to get a completely different set of numbers than we've seen before. And the numbers probably will resemble other places where they've been doing more testing and have a better idea on the size of this. But I mean, once again, and not to just hammer away at this point, but, you know, at the same uh, press conference, the same briefing, at one point he said, I've heard the numbers are getting much better in China, which is actually kind of true in terms of the flattening of the curve. But and then he goes, but I hear numbers are getting much better in Italy. Well, I mean, numbers were in Italy were within hours of doubling. And since then, we've gone to the, the northern Italy quarantine situation. Again, this is a situation where, you know, he's telling us things that are patently untrue. And I guess uh, I'm, I, I'm trying to turn this into a question, Dan. I guess the question is, there, is there any mechanism, any way in which when the person at the top is not telling the truth, people can get information out to us through other channels, other ways of briefing us. I would say, Colin, that there there is much truth to be found in a few places. The CDC website hasn't been complete. It's been running behind on lots of crucial information, but that doesn't make, make the CDC false. It just makes it uh, less up to date than, say, the Johns Hopkins tracker of of coronavirus cases as they pop up around the country. I also think uh, the press has been pretty good and, and pretty aggressive on this story, not just breaking uh, news about what the administration was going to do and, and when they were going to do it, but also pointing out mismanagement and, and mistakes. I, I'd certainly point to our story, but also uh, the New York Times, the Post, Washington Post have, have been really great and aggressive. Stat News a reporter named Helen Branswell, yes. in, in my estimation, might be the best infectious disease reporter uh, currently working, and, and her reports have been helpful and accurate and, um, and sober. 
one other one other component that I might point to is as this outbreak spreads and poses more of a risk, there are individuals and, and organizations like the Gates Foundation that are now stepping in. And the, the public health response overall, I think, is is rising to the challenge. The challenge, though, has been that the Trump administration did not meet that challenge a few weeks ago and, and has complicated uh, not just information on the problem, but the federal response as well. I just want to second those emotions, Dan Diamond. If you're not following uh, Helen Branswell on Twitter uh, and you care about this issue, you you should be. And reading her stuff and Sharon Begley's stuff uh, in Stat News, it, it is really terrific. And at the beginning of this show, also, our, our epidemiologist talked about a couple of university uh, websites where they have really good kinds of information. But, but Dan, just we're almost out of time here, but the other way that this is going to work probably is a lot of things are going to devolve to the state level. There are things that only the CDC can do. You know, there are things that really have to be done at a federal level. But at the level of things like quarantine, it even seems as though the enabling legislation exists more at the state level and and the the state level might be a little bit more agile in dealing with this. But it also involves turning a national uh, health crisis over to a patchwork of 50 different solutions. Right. And or or even more than 50 because cities and, and counties will get involved, too. I, I think, Colin, that there's there's a mix of things that will happen on the federal and state level. We, we had talked to some folks even two weeks ago who went to the White House for a meeting, some city and local folks, and the message they got was, this is going to be in your hands soon. And, and that's right, in that states and, and uh, local officials will have a lot of big decisions to make about quarantines, about aggressive response. But the federal effort is, is hugely important for a lot of reasons, one being the rules that are set nationally on Medicare and Medicaid and, and people who might be vulnerable and covered by those health programs, what will hospitals be able to do? What will they be able to bill for? What can the CDC allow and the FDA allow in terms of testing or, or support testing? So it is going to be a mishmash in the coming weeks, and I do think states will step forward, but the Trump administration has a major role to play as well. Right. And and just uh, to the the last point that you kind of chillingly make in your piece is that it seems also to be the policy uh, encouraged by the aides who closely surround President Trump not to give him information, that, that there's a sense that some people have, based on the sources that you talk to, that he operates better if he doesn't know certain things, which is kind of, yeah, I mean, you're gasping, I'm gasping. I, I don't quite get it, but that's sort of what you found, right? It, it, it's more a sad chuckle. Um, I reported on Friday that uh, the president, who was preparing to go to the CDC for a visit, and then that visit got called off, but then it went back on. One one reason it got called off, the big reason, was there was a suspected case of coronavirus infection at the CDC. The president told reporters this in the morning. My, my phone immediately lit up <laughs> with people from the health department or, or near the health department who said we had no idea that there was even a case at CDC and the pre- or a potential case. And the president is saying this on, on national TV. Um, so yet again, an example of the president perhaps blurting out information or, or attaching to things that in retrospect, his team might have thought twice about telling him. All right, Dan Diamond, great reporting and uh, great work here today. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your expertise. Thank you so much for having me, Colin. Yes. And then another quick uh, thank you to uh, the people on my team, uh, and that is Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, who's put together this show. We have one more segment for you to go on the insanity of panic shopping. Uh, and Cat Pastor's on the board making the whole thing sound just great. And Khalil Rahman's there on the phones getting the guests for us. And we'll be back with one more segment. 
Uh, welcome back. In our final segment, uh, you know, this whole notion of rational markets, I know it's highly discredited economic myth at this point, but if you needed it to be discredited more, I think in lots of ways in which human beings have reacted uh, to the coronavirus, uh, you could see even more evidence of our irrationality. And some of that is just good old-fashioned panic shopping. We know that people do this anyway. Anytime there's a snowstorm, people suddenly have this urge to have bread and milk. It's like they just feel like they're going to need French toast at some point. And we're going to see this even more as this particular, you know, not unreasonable state of alarm spreads. Here to talk to us about this is Helen Rosner, food correspondent for The New Yorker. Uh, Helen, welcome to our show. Hi, Colin. So, you went to, I think, the beating heart of panic buying, uh, which would be Costco, and maybe a New York Costco at that. And what did you find there? You know, it was really remarkable. I went to the Costco in Brooklyn, and the crowds were your usual extraordinary Costco crowds, but there were earlier in the morning, they were moving a lot faster, the energy was really chaotic. And People were dismantling the piles of toilet paper and paper towels and bleach wipes with the frenzy of, you know, piranha going after an animal falling into the river. It was pretty intense. And one of the things that you noted, which I was fascinated by, was there was sort of an upscale uh, panic, too. People wanted the Poland Spring more than they wanted the store brand Kirkland. People wanted the really good soft toilet paper more than the store brand uh, toilet paper, which you know, probably is cheaper and easier to buy in huge quantities. Yeah. I mean, at a certain level, I understand it. If you're going to be stuck inside for a couple of weeks without the ability to buy more toilet paper, get the good stuff. But um, yeah, you know, human irrationality when it comes to economic behavior has been endlessly studied by people with far more advanced degrees than I have. And that's actually a, a known irrational behavior. It's called a Giffen good when people are more interested in a slightly higher priced staple because maybe there's a perception of its higher quality or there's a sense that there's going to be scarcity. I think when it comes to water, too, in particular, um, and because with this quarantine potentiality, it's highly unlikely that anybody in America is going to lose access to good water if you have good water already. I think that people are just buying what they already buy. So if you're a family that buys bottled water, you're buying a lot more bottled water and you buy the brand that you're used to. Right. You know, it is hard to kind of divine all the motives behind this and, and some of it. I, well, actually, what you described is my, my long deceased mother used to say that one of the reasons people would flood the supermarkets right before a snowstorm buying certain things is they want to have something nice. <laughs> they want to have something nice to eat while they're trapped there. And there probably is that sort of sense, of sense, well, if there's sort of something resembling, at least on a temporary basis, the end of the world, I'd like to be as comfortable as possible. And as long as you're introducing us to new terms like Giffen Good, uh, I was just so thrilled to learn the German word Hamsterkauf. I may not be saying it correctly, and you may not know how to say it correctly, but tell us what it is. It's, you know, I was amazed to learn this word as well. People were sharing this on Twitter and on Facebook because, of course, the whole meta discourse about the, the coronavirus panic has been so fascinating. There's this German term, hamsterkaufe, which means to shop in a hoarding manner. It means panic shopping, and, and the word hamster in there is not an accident. It refers to hamsters. If you think about how they fill their cheeks with grains or with nuts, it's this idea of just storing and storing and storing and, and hoarding in a panicked shopping kind of way. 
You know, I, I think a couple of other things are happening there. The thing that's the most depressing, I think, is that people do tend to see this whole thing as kind of a zero-sum game where they place their interests first, too. So, I mean, yeah, there are certain kinds of supplies that would probably make more sense to have either in the hands of people with uh, compromised immunosystems or people who are actually delivering services to other sick people. But it doesn't really seem like the panic shoppers have the capacity to think outside their own set of panic-driven needs. Yeah, and that's very human, unfortunately. I think that when we're under stress, we all tend to center in and think about ourselves and our immediate families first. And, you know, in many ways, the great work of humanity is remembering to think about others all the time. But you're absolutely right. I think that as this disease continues to be spreading, the thing that we're hearing over and over again from the CDC, from epidemiologists, from health professionals, is that the important thing that those of us with relatively healthy immune systems and who are generally in good health can do is ease the burden on the healthcare system for people who might be in a more urgent situation. So if we can take care of our own nutrition, if we can make sure that we're eating healthy, that we're breathing fresh air, that we're sleeping well, that we're not suscepting ourselves to any sort of sickness, we can make sure that there's plenty of space and plenty of energy for people who are being harmed by a much more urgent, much more contagious disease. Right. Although I think the other issue here is control. People feel like they, they want to control their own destiny. They want to control their own environments. And it's hard for them to do that because they don't have all the information they need and because COVID-19 has that particular quality of infecting people in an asymptomatic way at times. So the person standing next to them could or could not have this particular virus. And as a result, they control the things that they can control. I also think back to right after 9-11 when President Bush said what seemed like a pretty bizarre statement that if you want to do something, go shopping. For and, sure. Yeah. And, but I think as participants in a consumer society, that is a kind of strain for us, a strain that's in our characters, that first of all, the way we control our destiny is by buying stuff. And one of the things that we can do, apparently, although it doesn't seem to work the right way in this instance, is buy stuff. For sure. That's absolutely the case. I think we see people turn to shopping in times of crisis that are not existentially threatening. I mean, there's the whole cliche of the shopaholic, spending money, issuing some kind of control over your finances, what you have in your house, whatever it is, is a way of asserting your authority over yourself and your space in a time when you don't actually have a lot of authority about what's going on around you. And unlike something like a snowstorm, it's not like this is going to hit in an obvious, visible way. This is something that's creeping up slowly that might exponentially explode at a moment. But I think people are, are wondering, like, when is the quarantine happening? When is it time for me to bunker down? And that sense of uncertainty of waiting for a hard line that might not come is really stressful. Right. You know, there's some you know, Neil Stevenson novel. I can't remember which one it is, but it, it, it takes place in a somewhat dystopian cyberpunk future, like all of his novels do. And the character says something like, at this point, there's only three things left that America does better than anybody else. I think it's software, celebrities and high speed pizza delivery. And there's a sense in which, you know, in New York, boy, that this is something New York does really well, is bring food right up to your door. And this is a point that you make in your piece, that of all things to be worried about, and in all places to be worried about it, there is an additional insanity <laughs> in New York to think that one of the things that's going to happen in, in a short-term window is you won't get food delivered to you? 
that's absolutely true, especially with groceries. The other thing that, that I think is worth noting, too, is that this is mostly a supply chain hiccup right now. These empty shelves full of toilet paper that we're seeing are being very quickly replenished by new orders of toilet paper. We're not having a natural disaster that's destroyed the toilet paper factories. So the supply chains are still moving. The United States supply chain infrastructure, even internationally, is still moving. So groceries are going to be refilling the shelves, and grocery delivery services are presumably going to still be running, even in the most intense moments in some of the hardest quarantine cities in China, delivery infrastructure was still very much present. Right. So, yes, here's the situation where individual risk is still pretty low, but thinking in a communitarian way is a a good idea, and it's sort of the opposite of what we're doing. Oh, well. As you say, this is a human impulse. Helen Rosner, food correspondent for The New Yorker. Thanks so much. A great piece. Uh, I recommend people check it out uh, on The New Yorker website. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks so much for having me. All right. And that's the show for today. I hope it wasn't too scary. And you shouldn't be too scared. You should be appropriately cautious. How's that? And we'll talk to you tomorrow.